Okay, so two weeks ago, we kicked off our Lenten series titled Sacred Rhythms, which is based on Ruth Haley Barton's book of the same exact title. And we began that time together by reframing Lent and recognizing that in some circles, in fact, some of the circles that we may have come out of, Lent um, was seen as this 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter where you aren't supposed to have fun or say hallelujah or eat certain things or drink certain things, and that's what it's all about. Well, as we discovered, Lent is not primarily about fasting, although it may include that for our own good, and it's not primarily about practicing spiritual disciplines, although spiritual disciplines can bear fruit. Lent, as we discovered, literally means springtime. And every year, I, I love that image because every year, spring simply happens. It happens without your help or my help. It happens without our consent, really. So if you don't like spring, I'm sorry. It's just going to happen. The days tend to get longer. The air tends to get warmer. The trees put forth their shoots. In fact, we spent all day Friday pruning a giant tree in our yard. The flowers burst forth into color, and spring simply happens. Now, you can choose to say, uh, stay inside during the springtime, and you can shut your blinds, and you can put blankets on, and you can pretend that it's still winter. But you don't have to do that. You can choose to open the shutters of your house and let the light in. You can shake the rugs and hang them outside. You can get on with your spring cleaning, the projects you've been procrastinating on all winter because it's too nasty or dark or you're too depressed or because it's too wet, whatever the reason. Spring is a season of new growth. And in a similar way, and I think that's why Lent is called Lent, springtime, is because it's a season of spiritual springtime. It's a season where we take time to get intentional about our spiritual houses. Some spiritual writers in the Middle Ages often talked about the human person as a, as a home. And sometimes throughout the year, especially in the dark winter months of our lives, we let a bunch of junk in. We let people track in our houses. And we let in forms of media and different habits that kind of dirty up our hearts. And so Lent is a season each year set aside to like, hey, let's take stock of what things look like in my heart and in my head and choose to, to, to clean it out a little bit, to let light in. You can live as though it's still winter in your heart during the Lenten season, but you don't have to. See, to me, Lent is a built-in reminder that we have new life available to us. We can dust the cobwebs out and, and take inventory of our hearts and open the shutters of God's light to come in and penetrate. So last week, we talked about the discipline of silence and solitude, which is just what the doctor has ordered for many of us in our overactive, production-oriented, media-saturated lives. In silence and solitude, we choose to slow down long enough to lower our guard so that Jesus can come in and maybe heal or address some of those deep places in us underneath the surface. Some of those places that we shield from the world because they're too sensitive. Like, a, I've got actually a hurt tooth right now. <laughs> Corey knows this. I have to get a crown on it. So I'm eating on one side of my mouth because I'm so, it's so sensitive over there. But I actually made an appointment it's in June. It's that far out. You can't even get me in. Okay. <clears throat> but in June, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to succumb to the needles and all of that, and I'm going to get this tooth fixed. And sometimes it takes a long, it takes a day, you know, it takes half a day for me to block out for that. And silence and solitude 
That was a bad analogy. It's better than going to the dentist, by far. But sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it feels that way. It's difficult. Silence and solitude takes practice. Most of us are not used to slowing down. And most of us, most of the time, if, uh, silence and solitude will be agonizing. You spend, I mean, raise your hand if this is like you, you spend 10 or 20 minutes in silence only to realize that 95% of your time is either fighting the sleep nods or realizing that you've just been daydreaming and you've got a bunch of other stuff. Thinking about random thoughts, worrying in the presence of God. Just know this. God is at work underneath the surface when you slow down. Despite what you think you're thinking of, he's at work. Whether you experience tranquility or distraction, silence and solitude is about stopping to let God do something that you can't do for yourself. And second, be gentle with yourself. Be gentle with yourself because the great spiritual masters from St. Anthony to Teresa of Avila to St. Ignatius to Bernard of Clairvaux, they all found prayer and silence and solitude difficult. And they also found it necessary and transforming. And this evening, we're going to talk about a different approach to Jesus. It is called Lectio Divina, or spiritual reading. Anyone out there practiced Lectio Divina before? Yeah, I know several of you have. Yeah, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great practice, spiritual reading. But before we dive into what this is about, I want to make some things clear. Each of these disciplines that we've either talked about thus far or will talk about in the Lenten season take more than just one week to master, just newsflash. I mean, people devote their whole lives to developing a rich spiritual life. So I'm not suggesting, nor am I even hoping, that all of a sudden you and I are going to take every one of these disciplines and start doing them every day, okay? So just, if you thought that, just, oh, great. Okay, my hope is to encourage you to listen to the invitation of Jesus. During this season in your life, right now, what is Jesus inviting you into? How is he inviting you to approach him? It might be through silence and solitude. Maybe that's just the thing you need. It might be through his word. It might be through one of these other disciplines. And what I hope to do in this series is to give us resources or muscle memory of, of some practices we can draw upon. Because whether or not he's, he's calling you into something deeper right now or next week or next month or next year, you'll have some exposure to these things. So think of these disciplines we're talking about as invitations and not obligations, okay? This invitation, of course, is dependent upon the character and calling of Jesus. And last week, instead of focusing on the discipline of silence and solitude, we looked at the character of Jesus, the good shepherd. And we saw that because Jesus is good and safe, and because he has our best interest in mind as the good shepherd, that we can trust him. We can actually trust that, gosh, if he's calling me to a place of slowing down and being with him, it will be okay, I will be safe, and he will redeem that time for good. And this evening, I want to remind us of the type of God that we have is a God who speaks to us today. And you're not crazy, you're not hearing voices in your head. So stand with me as we... Read the text as John 10, 1 through 5. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
The one who does not enter by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply won't follow, but they'll flee from a stranger because they do not know the voice of strangers. Lord, help us to recognize your voice among the many, many voices in our world and in our minds. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. Would you speak to us today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we were rooted in Psalm 23, that famous psalm, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd, I shall not want, and on it goes. You probably have heard that one before. Clearly in Psalm 23, God is the shepherd of the psalmist, whether it's David or later psalmist or the nation of Israel as it would happen later on. But when Jesus became a human being and he was teaching people, he self-identified as the good shepherd. So if we wanted to talk about doctrine today, we could make the case that Jesus is making himself out to be Yahweh. And sure enough, that is an element of this passage in John 10. If we wanted to talk about biblical theology, we could point out how often times when religious leaders led their people astray, the prophets warned them of judgment and the offer of hope in that God would come as a good shepherd in his person. And if we wanted to talk about biblical theology, we could look back at, at all of these types of symbols of, of God sending good shepherds, God himself becoming flesh and dwelling among us. But what I want to talk about today is something simpler than theology and doctrine, more obvious and more often taken for granted. And it is the fact that Jesus speaks. That Jesus speaks. In John 10, Jesus is presented as the shepherd, the corrupt religious leaders are the thieves and the robbers, and Jesus' disciples are the sheep. Now, the point isn't so much to associate you and I with sheep, which are dull and stubborn and stupid and defenseless, although there are some strong analogies there to me and many of us that I, that I know. Uh, but the point is to qual the quality of the shepherd in the story. Much uh, that would have been obvious to a pastoral society in first century Palestine is kind of lost on most of us who uh, are, are either urban or suburbanites. I, I know some of you have some farming experience, maybe even some shepherding experience, but for the vast majority, I, I, I kind of doubt it. So here's how this works. After grazing for the day, a shepherd would bring his flock to rest in a sheepfold, in a closed pen of sorts. It would take many shapes. I mean, sometimes they had materials like stones, and they would have stone walls that were pretty high. Sometimes they would use wood and riprap. Sometimes they would just have boulders circling the sheep, and then they would use dried thorns as almost a natural barbed wire. But the point is always the same, to have a secure spot for the sheep to lie down at night so they wouldn't be anxious, to protect them from leopards and wolves, and to protect them from human thieves who would want to come steal sheep from the flock. 
Philip Keller writes, sheep quickly become accustomed to their owner's particular voice. They're acquainted with its unique tone. They know its peculiar sounds and inflections. They can distinguish it from that of any other person. Even if a stranger should use the same words and phrases of that of the rightful owner, they would not act in the same way. He goes on, this is simply because over a period of time, sheep come to associate the sound of the shepherd's voice with special benefits. When the shepherd calls to them, it is for the specific purpose that has their own best interests in mind. The sheep know the, no, don't only recognize the voice of the shepherd, but they trust it because the shepherd is always leading them to safety and to food and to water, to heal their wounds, these types of things. Sheep are by nature skittish. They will not trust unfamiliar voices. They only trust the voice of the shepherd. The problem for us in this story is that most of us have many other shepherds besides Jesus. We recognize lots of other voices and we pander to those voices. We listen to the voices that are either uh, from the inside that are either like too self-congratulatory and they puff us up or those voices inside that are always tearing ourselves down. And if you have those tapes going on, it's called anxiety. I'm never good enough. I can't do this. We listen to voices that are on TV and radio and internet that are constantly filling us with anxiety because life, my life isn't as interesting as so-and-so's on Facebook, but they're only putting the highlights on. Or my life isn't as glamorous as so-and-so on TV or as playful as that couple on, the, on that's my favorite sitcom. These other voices are sirens leading us to the destruction on the rocky shores of delusion and self-indulgence and ambition. Meanwhile, you and I have a good shepherd. We have one who so loves us he laid down his life so that we might live. In Jesus, we have a shepherd who is so tender. He, he's tender enough to love us. He's humble enough to put our rescue before his own comfort. And he's strong enough to defeat death itself. Jesus speaks to us. And he longs to lead us into life. And while that life that Jesus leads us into, it's not for the faint of heart. Some of you know. But it is fuller and richer and more true than any of the life that those siren voices are going to offer us. If Jesus is the good shepherd, if he speaks, then how on earth do we hear his voice amongst all the other voices that we're accustomed to? Of course, there's many ways to hear Jesus' voice, from prayer to a spoken word through a brother or sister in Christ. But the primary way, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is through the Scriptures. Think about it in terms of nutrition. The voices that aren't from Jesus are like junk food. They taste really good going down, and then they have lots of side effects that are uh, disgusting. <laughs> But when we listen to Jesus, two things are happening. One is, when we're listening to Jesus, we aren't listening to the other voices in that, state, in that moment in time. We are detoxing from those voices. When we're listening to Jesus, we're not listening to the other voices. So we're detoxing. We're giving our system a break. And second, when we're taking in the nutrients of life, we are taking in truth and power and wisdom and direction. And it's not like Jesus' words or Brussels sprouts are disgusting, but the Bible talks, which I kind of like them now that they're roasted in olive oil, but 
Think of a disgusting healthy food that you don't like. His word's not like that. The Bible describes God's word as, as sweet like honeycomb dripping with sweetness. And that's where Lectio Divina comes in. In the Western church, and I say this as a generalization, but that's where we live, we're most accustomed to receiving God's word in three primary ways. Through the preaching moment, like right now, um, through Bible studies, and through personal Bible reading. Especially in the evangelical tradition, we have a, a tradition of personal Bible reading. It's one of the things that first got people back into the word of God. All three of those are great, by the way. I applaud you for being here and sitting through this sermon time. I highly recommend all three forms of receiving God's word, Bible studies and personal reading and, ser- and listening to sermons. But the downside is that sometimes we can turn our Bible study and our Bible reading into an exercise of gathering information rather than really getting to know Jesus. Sometimes, even in our best efforts, we're doing our Bible reading and we just are doing it to either check off a box or to know the story a little bit better, but we don't know the author of the story or the star of the story. The purpose of following Jesus isn't to know more about him. It's to know him, to be close to him. So in Lectio Divina, we intentionally suspend our critical approach to the text so that we can hear what Jesus might be saying in our current situation. Did you hear what I said? I know it sounds weird especially coming from me. In Lectio Divina, we intentionally suspend our critical approach to the text so we can hear what Jesus might be saying to us here and now in our context. Some of you, maybe 2%, are going, yes, finally. The rest of you think this sounds hokey or suspect. I don't know. We never, we never approach the text uncritically. Now, of all people, if you know me, if you're a guest, hi, I'm Chris, but if for those of you who know me, you know I'm committed to proper uh, exposition of Scripture, to genre and to context and to languages and to customs and rhetoric and theology. Hey, just a week ago, or maybe a little bit more, one of those pastors from a snake-handling church got killed by a freaking snake. That's not what the end of Mark means. We can discuss that later. But I, you know, so it's important to properly exegete the text. The news is full of people doing crazy and sometimes even evil things because the Bible told them so. So trust me, I'm into biblical studies. And 51 out of 52 weeks, that's what you're going to get here. But today, we're going to talk about Lectio Divina. Because it doesn't mean that we throw out all the other techniques to approaching the Bible. In fact, the church has been practicing Lectio Divina since the very first centuries of its uh, inception. And in our culture, I find that Lectio Divina is a great remedy for our fast-paced, media-rich lives. How many times have you read the Bible in your quiet time, or gone to a Bible study, or even listened to a sermon, and you're like, I think I understood that word a little better, or I'm not even sure what I read, or you read it and you realize, I'm not even sure what I read but I've got to go to work, or I've got to move on. And so it's just this exercise of, of reading through the text, but not letting it soak in, not letting it address you. Michael Casey writes, our source of inability to extract a message from our reading is such an important issue, it takes a whole chapter in his book. We fail to hear God because there's so much noise within. Can you resonate with that? 
we fail to hear God because there's just so much noise within. Lectio Divina is like silence and solitude with Scripture. Some of you, I talked to you this week, I said, how did it go practicing silence and solitude? You said it was agonizing. A lot of you said it was agonizing because you sit there and, like I said earlier, it's just all of this white noise, all of the to-do lists. I'm not even sure I spent one minute out of 10 or 20 actually focused on God. That's the report. And part of the problem is you don't have a lot to focus on. Like, what am I supposed to do in this time? Hey, if that was like you, here's a great remedy. In Lectio Divina, we're going to be silent, but we're also going to focus on a text. So you have a focal point. Yay, focal point. We're going to practice it together, um, like in just a few minutes. And I think that that's how we're going to close our sermon time. I'm going to give you the word in a different way. I'm not going to break it down for you today. I'm going to allow you to receive it. If you have a bulletin in the notes section, there are the four movements of Lectio Divina. And I'm just going to briefly cover them right now. So, like I said, there are four movements in this practice. The first is Lectio, which is a Latin word literally meaning reading. If you have, a, you know, like a love letter in your hand or some, um, some, something very precious to you, you kind of read it differently than you would uh, like a research paper or a journal or something like that. You're, you're not mining it just for information or the thesis or underlining the verbs. You are, you're trying to get into the heart and mind of the reader, or I'm the writer, you know what I'm saying? So in Lectio, we're just receiving the word, and the point will be, pay attention if there is a word or a phrase that just stands out to you, that just pops off the page, if you will, or stands out in your hearing. That's all that Lectio is. The second phase is meditatio, meditation. I'll read the text an, uh, uh, another time, and what you're going to do is uh, focus on that, that word or that phrase and engage with it at the level of the heart. Does it cause you to feel joy or anger? Or here's an important one in spiritual direction. Do you feel resistance? Pay attention to your resistance when you hear a text. Why am I resisting what this is saying to me? So that's meditatio. The third phase is oratio. Uh, that's where we get orator, this, this type of thing. This is where we respond back to God, like you've heard the word, you've wrestled with it a little bit in, in meditatio, um, listening for what it might mean for you, and now you're responding back. Maybe it's thank you for this word, Lord, or maybe it's a, something like, that's going to be a tough, a tough one. I don't know if I can do it, Lord. Would you help me? Or I'm resisting this right now. I don't like what you said to me. But that's, that's that spot. It's just something from out of our heart. It comes out of us back to God. And then the fourth phase is contemplatio, um, contemplation, in which we simply spend a few moments resting in the experience that has happened. So we're going to practice this. Cohort kids, this is pretty awesome. You guys get to do something that a lot of people uh, your parents' age may have only done sporadically or never at all. So you guys get to do something really cool that even the ancient church fathers and mothers did in their monasteries. And so what's helpful is if your feet touch the ground, put your feet flat on the ground, sit up straight to kind of avoid the uh, nodding up. And by the way, there's no judgment here. I know it's been a long week, so if you fall asleep, um, that's fine. You probably need it. But... And one, one thing to just 
for a, a posture, if you're comfortable, just put your hands on your lap with your palms up. It's just a, a posture of receiving. Um, and you don't, the, the practice is all aural, okay? So I'll read, don't, don't try and follow along with the text. I'm not going to lie to you, it's actually what the Bible says. And uh, we'll go from there. So we're going to start with Lectio. I'm going to read the text through twice in a row. And I want you to pay attention to a word or phrase that pops out at you. Jennifer and Chad, you ch don't try and exegete the text. Don't try and figure out what the Greek meaning. Or don't, that's not what the point is. What, what's popping out? What's popping out? The word or phrase. Don't try and study it. All right, here we go. I'm going to read the text twice, and then we'll be silent. You don't have to worry about the time. I'll keep time, and then I'll lead us into the next moment. From John 15, 1 through 5. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing.
going to read the text again. And I'm going to ask you to pay attention to how that word or phrase that caught your attention intersects with your life. Does it evoke a feeling, a longing, a memory, resistance? This is the time to wrestle with those things. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As I read the text a third time, 
Pay attention to how Jesus may be inviting you to respond. Conviction, invitation, new life, new possibilities. After I read it, feel free in your heart to tell him your joy, your sorrow, your fear, your new confidence. Tell him how you feel. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. The one who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing.
going to read the text one last time. And this is simply an invitation to rest in what you heard, what you've been wrestling with, what new possibilities there may be for you and the Lord moving forward. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who speaks. That you are the life giver. Help us to abide in you. To seek you. 
celebrate that you pursue us as well. I pray your encouragement over my brothers and sisters. I pray your sense of presence would be with them richly. We bless you. Amen.